Feel good. Uh, went to Miss Leanne Byers. Amen. From the Byers group there. And the dessert, the best dessert, swept both categories. Not only the most unique and the best uh, was Miss Sherry Reynolds from the Woods House Church. Secret ingredient, I was told, not a secret anymore. Because I'm telling you, it was Mountain Dew. Who would, I didn't taste it in there, but I was told that was whatever, apples to dumplings with Mountain Dew. Amen. Well, that was great. I mean, we, of course, we've had, for, for some of our guests, if you don't know, last night we had half the church had a chili cook and dessert cook off. The week before, the other half of the church had the, the chili cook off and, and the dessert competition. Now we're getting ready for our next big meal social event, which comes up on April the 2nd. The murder mystery dinner, which is like till death do us part or something such as that. It's a, it's a wedding themed mystery dinner type of a, a, a night. And you can sign up in the back there either to, to play a part, play a role, or to just come and have a good time and try to figure out who the killer is. All right. And then, of course, not in that vein of silliness and dressing up and having a good time in that way, but we do have Easter Sunday coming up, which is coming early this year. Uh, it's, it's in March uh, this year, March the 27th, and to get ready for that, we're starting a new series today. Uh, Mark has already shared with you a little bit about it uh, as we start this new series starting, uh, the name of it is Famous Last Words. And that's his final words up there because I couldn't find one that said famous last words. But the name of the series is Famous Last Words. Last words are often very important. When someone's about to die, you know, they figure your last words, you know, you've got to weigh them carefully. The, uh, the, the, the very famous, I don't know what you want to call him, predictionist, Nostradamus, star of History Channel, uh, he said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And he was right. <laughs> Groucho Marx, the great comedian, personally one of my favorites, one last quip before he died, he said, this is no way to live. <laughs> Sometimes the words are meaningful and powerful. Harriet Tudman, back in 1913. She was about to die. She gathered her family around her, and they all sang together. And as they were singing together, her last words were, Swing low, sweet chariot. And some of you know who Bo Diddley is, great pioneer uh, of blues and that Bo Diddley beat. As he was dying, they were listening to the song, Walk Around Heaven. He gave a thumbs up and said, wow, and then died. Sometimes last, you know, I said, wow. It's a cool song, Walk Around Heaven. Sometimes last words, though, were very sad. Very famous actress, Joan Crawford, was filled with anger when her maid began praying for her as she was on her deathbed, and she yelled out loud, don't you dare ask God to help me. Of course, Pancho Villa, Mexican revolutionary, said, don't let it in like this. Tell him I said something. (laughs) 
But Karl Marx, now that's not Groucho's brother, Karl Marx, kind of one of the founders of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the Communist Party and the Communist philosophy, turned to his housekeeper. Uh, she was urged him, she said, tell, tell her, tell me your last words, I want to write them down so people will know what your last words are. And he yelled at her, get out of here, last words are fools who haven't already said enough. So Pancho said, tell him I said something. And, uh, you know, Carl said, hey, last words are for idiots who hadn't said enough already. Oftentimes, you can tell a lot about a person from their last words, what was important to them. Jesus' last words occurred while he hung on the cross, an executioner's cross. And these had to have been important words to him because when you're hanging on a cross, it's, it's very, very difficult to talk. A lot of people do not understand that the cross in and of itself, its, its form of torture, the way it kills you is by suffocation. Now, yeah, they, they would drive the nails in his, in his well, technically his, his wrists and then in his feet, but that's not enough to kill you. It's very excruciating. It's painful, but it's not enough to kill you. But what would happen is, is as you hang there, and if you hang from this in this position, you hang down, and it stretches your muscles to the point to where your, your diaphragm, you cannot exhale. And so in order to exhale to get another breath, he would have to pull himself up or push himself up with his feet, which had the nail in it, and pull himself up by his hands, who had the nails in it, and then at that moment, use that exhale to say whatever he wanted to say, take another breath, and then oftentimes the pain would get too excruciating and you'd drop back down. And the, the, the genius, if you want to look at it that way, of the torture of the cross is, is that your mind, your body, will not let you die if at all possible. So you can't just say, you know, it's too painful to pull myself up and take another breath. I'll just stay down here and suffocate. You can't do that any more than you can hold your breath till you die. Okay, kids who say, I'm going to hold my breath till I die. You can't. <laughs> your mind will take over and say, I'm going to get another breath no matter what. And so Jesus, and that's the torture of the cross, how, how no matter how painful it was, he had to pull himself up to take that other breath. And it was at those moments that he would say these things. And so it would take a lot to say just these few sentences that we have as the final words from the cross. Now, three of the statements were made between 9 o'clock and noon. The Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When he spoke to the, the thieves on the cross, he spoke to one of them. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then later when he told his mother, woman, and she's talking, he's talking to John, the, the apostle John, this is going to be your son now, and John, this is going to be your mother now. And then from noon to about three, the darkness covered the land, and most people agree that Jesus didn't say anything during that time frame. And then at three o'clock, Jesus began to utter his last words, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then that I am thirsty, and then it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. We're going to look over these over the next four weeks, getting ready for Easter. And as you know, last week we had invitations. We passed them out, uh, building towards an Easter service. And, and, of course, we finish with Jesus' final words, it is finished, but then Easter comes, but it's not over. And that's where we're going to be leading to. But we're going to start out today with the first of these sayings. And we have it in Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. 
It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. In the Greek language, uh, we're told that this phrase, Father, forgive them, is in a continual sense. It would be an essence of us saying, uh, he, he either continually said it or he, it was a father can keep forgiving them. Some people believe it was that Jesus continually said this over and over again. He said it more than once, perhaps even through the whole ordeal. While they beat him, Father, forgive him. While they took him to the cross, Father, forgive them. While they were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them. When they stood the cross up, Father, forgive them. I don't know if he said it more than once. It, truth is, is even if he only said it once, it does not diminish the power and the importance of these words. Father, forgive them. Forgive who? The people that hated him. The people that framed him for this very execution. The people that had him beaten. The people who actually did the beating. The ones who were killing him at that very moment. And the ones who were laughing at his suffering and his death. Father, forgive them. The word forgive is, is borrowed from a, a, a financial language, a vocabulary of banking and loans. It, it meant basically to cancel a debt, to cancel the loan. But uh, uh, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he reminds us, he says, the word forgive has the word give in it. And that really with forgiving, it's not just canceling. To forgive, it is to cancel one thing, but it's to give another thing. It's not just, I don't hold this against you, but it's also, I give you grace and love. Now, I realize we could go two different ways. At this point, when I'm writing this and putting this together, I can go two different ways with this lesson. I can go that one route as well. Um, Jesus forgave, so we need to forgive. And that is a very important lesson. There are many, many, many verses that talk about that. As a matter of fact, the Bible's very plain. Even Jesus himself said that the, much, the, the, the amount of grace and mercy you get from God will depend upon how much grace and mercy you have on others. So many of us fight, so, oh, I want to be saved, I want to be saved, when one of the greatest things we can do to give us grace and mercy is be graceful and merciful ourselves. But I've preached on that point many, many times, and so I'm not going to talk about that one today. We're going to skip to another point. The second lesson that I felt we could go two different ways with this, Father, forgive, and I want to go with this second one. That when, by Jesus saying this, it shows us how much we really need forgiveness. More than we know or think we do. Jesus' heart was so full of grace and forgiveness because, well, he tells us the reason. He says, because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Not only does he appeal to God on our behalf, but he argues on our behalf as well. There's a reason why I want you to forgive them. Because I think Jesus, what he observed is very, very true. Mankind, you and I, are woefully ignorant of God 
and his holiness, his righteousness. And our actions reflect that. We're so sinful, guys, we don't even realize how sinful we are. Usually we think we're pretty good. Now, none of us is so arrogant to say we're perfect, because then that would really show how not good we are. But we think, well, I've got a few things I've got to work on. Maybe you're, you know, if you happen to, to, to fall prey to one of the, some of the bigger things, the, the problems in our life that, that, that uh, have hard and terrible consequences in this life, one or two of those things, and, and we really wrestle with that. But overall, we think, but I'm really not that bad. I'm really a good person. And we help, we compare ourselves with other people. And the truth is, is in this room, in our culture, if we're looking at things on that level, comparing ourselves, we're all pretty good. And we really lock in on that. The problem is we don't see ourselves like God sees us. We don't know how sinful we are. We're like my buddy Roscoe. That's my dog. If you know me, I love my dog Roscoe. He's like a part of our family. We call him our little furry fourth child. But he's a dog. And he has some horrible habits. And sometimes he comes in from outside and he stinks. But he doesn't know he stinks. Because he's a dog. He's like a skunk. A skunk doesn't know he stinks. The skunk doesn't stink like, oh, wow, that's powerful stink. No, the skunk stinks like everybody runs the other way. But the skunk doesn't know it. That's a lot of the way we are about our sins. We really don't know how bad we are in God's eyes as sinners because we think we're, we're not that bad. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And I want us to read this together. And I want to tell you right now before I you know, spoil it for you, he ain't just talking about the Jews here. Okay? He's talking about all of us as we're going to see here. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, it says, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So he's, he tells it right up. He ain't just picking on the Jewish nation here. Gentiles, that's, that's, that's us. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. You say, where do I seek God? You don't see yourself clearly. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who is good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they, did not, they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, these, these folks are in trouble. <laughs> except these folks are us. In verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Well, well is that me? I don't know. I think he's talking to the Jews there. Well, it is for the next sentence, as he continues on, so that every mouth might be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The whole world is silenced. There is no defense 
The whole world is held accountable. Not just them, but us. Me. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Through the law, we became conscious of our sin. Now, you see here, he's talking about works of the law there, the Jews. The principle is this. No one will be declared righteous by their own actions, by their own power, by their own, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm good enough. That's the principle, whether it's works of the Old Testament law or the New Testament law or whatever. No one's going to be declared righteous because you know what? I'm, I'm basically, I'm good enough. God's grading me on a curve here. God says, no, you sin. When we say, I fell into, no, God says, no, you sin. Matter of fact, many times what we call a choice, God calls sin. Come on, Tracy. Come on, bro. Sometimes what we call love, God calls sin. What we say, this is mine, this is, I, I need this for me, I deserve, God calls sin. It's just natural, it's just what I am, it's, it's who I am, I, I can't deny, I've just got to be me, I've got to do what comes naturally. Jesus is fine for you. And they don't know what they're doing. Now, that's a weird argument. Most people will say, Father, forgive them because they're innocent. <laughs> Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I bet they're guilty as they can be. <laughs> they just too dumb to know how guilty they are. He acknowledges man's guilt and argues for God's forgiveness. Why? Because he knew at that very, very moment, God was providing the means for that forgiveness. At that very moment, God was answering Jesus' prayer. That's quite possible to me that Jesus, instead of saying, God, please forgive them, he was actually reminding himself as he's hanging there and pulling himself up. Okay, God, this is what we planned. This is what we're here for. This is why I'm here. Okay, now, God. Knowing that it was part of the plan all along. Knowing all along that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. That those who would believe in him, that those who would say, I will live my life with him for him, should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus says, okay, now God, forgive them. I paid that price. But we got to connect to that forgiveness. we got to accept it. Because most people... Don't experience that forgiveness of the utter worthlessness that we have because they don't connect to God. Like a story of a minister and his friend who happened to be a hairdresser. You know, part You'll call it that. Hairdresser, they're walking down the street. The hairdresser's like, how can, we all heard this question before, I mean, how can God... Be a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and say he loves us with such... Look at the world. I mean, people are killing one another. People are full of hate. People are taking advantage of one another and hurting one another. And sin is fucking rampant. How can you say God is full of love and forgiveness? And so walking, the preacher notices this homeless guy over here and he goes, well, how can you call yourself a hairdresser? What do you mean? Look at that guy over there. Looks like he had not showered and cleaned up in, in weeks. His hair is all grown out. His beard, he hadn't shaved in three or four weeks. How in the world can you call yourself a hairdresser when 
like that. The guy goes, well, that's not fair. If he would just come into my salon, he'd come in, I could take care of him. I'd cut his hair, I'd shave him up, I'd clean him up. <laughs> that's the way we are with God sometimes. How can God allow all this time? And God's going, guys, I'm desperate to clean you up. I'm desperate to shave you up. I'm desperate to wash you clean and to, and to fix everything. I've done everything I can to forgive you, Jesus, and hung on the cross, but you got to come in. You gotta get. Let me help you. Let me do this. We live in a day today of postponed judgment. What that means is, is God saying, "Okay, I'm not going to call game over yet because I want you all to come in." In Second Peter three nine, it says. God's patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants us all to be saved. He sacrificed his one and only son so that we could all be saved, so we could all be forgiven. Not because we're good and we're great and we're not that bad. We're very, we're horrible. We're, we don't even know how bad we are. But God's going, I'm doing everything I can to save you. I'm desperate. I want to forgive everyone. I'm desperate to forgive you. The very fact that Jesus was hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, is proof God is desperate. And we know the rest of the story. The world may not understand it, but we understand it. We understand that Jesus was not just a good guy and a great teacher hanging on a cross. He was the Son of God. He was the sacrifice. He was the sinless one. He was the one that was good enough, but took the price for sin for all of us. We understand that. We understand he was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. We understand that by that death, we can have eternal life. But what do we do with that understanding? Do we say, does it motivate it? I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to live for him. I've got to. And we want to accept it. Okay, that, that's great. But Jesus says, you know, it's more than just saying, hey, okay, I, I accept it. Jesus says, live for me. I died for you. Live for me. Die to your old life. Live for me. That's what we call people to. That's what we call us all to. To go that next step in your journey with God, that step closer to Him, that step to Jesus, that step that says, you know what? I need that forgiveness. I need to live for Jesus. I need to really, really understand because I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm pretty good. Evidently, I don't know what I'm doing. With Phyllis and I one time when we were visiting the, uh, the, the Vatican Museum. And we're going to go see the Sistine Chapel, right? Sistine Chapel. And, but what we didn't realize is you've got to walk for like an hour through this maze of hallways and other chapels to get to the Sistine Chapel. And every inch of the wall and every inch of the ceiling and every inch of it was covered with paintings everywhere. Paintings, paintings. It got to the point to where you're going, oh, there's another painting. You know, I mean, it, 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 
it, it got to that point, and, and, and you're looking at them, and you're going, okay, these are beautiful, these are beautiful, these are beautiful. And then you walk into the Sistine Chapel, and you look up, and you go, holy smokes. Now that's a painting. I'm not an arty guy, and I could tell that was head and shoulders above everything else we had seen. And I realized I had no idea what I was talking about with that other stuff. I had no I, I thought that was good. I thought those were pretty good paintings until I saw this one. Sometimes we are, we think, I think I'm pretty good. And then I look at myself through the eyes of God and I go, I had no idea what I was talking about. I, I did not even know what good was until I really see God. We want to help you see God. We want to help one another see God. I want to help you see God. And that's the journey we're taking together over the next several weeks through the final words of Jesus. Isn't it incredible? The first things he says when he gets on the cross is, Father, forgive them. Because they're actually pretty good folk. They're a little messed up. They're a little off track. No, he just said, they have no idea what they're doing. We need Jesus to show us what to do. To show us what real righteousness is about and what real forgiveness is about. We're going to continue on this journey. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus saying to that thief on the cross, Today, I'll be with you in paradise. Is that a good day? I mean, you're being crucified. That's a bad day. But the very Son of God says, Yeah, but later on today, you and me are going to go skipping down the streets of glory. That's a good day. How did that happen? I want a day like that. I want to encourage you to come back next week as we talk about that. But in the meantime, I want us to think about Jesus and what I can do for him and how I can live for him. The one who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. See your need for forgiveness. And let it move you to Jesus and the cross.